Beware of the monster at the end of this book. It might turn out to be a life beyond your wildest dreams, full of horseback riding, healing, maybe some basketball. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey, Consciously, it's Menachem Posnanski. Welcome back. It's great to be here. We have a great episode for you today, a really wonderful interview uh, with a wonderful woman named Shoshana Schwartz, who's doing some remarkable things. But before we get to that, uh, I want to first ask you to please uh, give us a five-star review on the podcast, uh, wherever you take your podcast, especially Apple. seems like that's where most of you are doing that. Uh, helps us get the word out. Also, spread the word. Tell your friends. Anyone you think would benefit from what we're doing over here about our podcast, it really helps. We really are thankful. Also, please check out our social media pages, The Light Revealed and Consciously62 on Instagram and Facebook. We've got some great content going out. We just did a great series on Spheris Omer that we're just wrapped up. Really remarkable, really thankful. Also, as always, you can find us on the Intentional Jew Podcasting Network, intentionaljew.com, and you can find my book, Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Your Creator, Jewish Bookstores, Amazon, all that good stuff. So to jump right in, today we have Shoshana Schwartz, uh, who is a recovery coach and addictions counselor. Shoshana works extensively with women dealing with issues related to codependency and addictions, such as shopping addiction, reading addiction, romance, sex addiction, food, exercise-related addictions, uh, screen addiction, anything else you can be addicted to, which is just about anything. Shoshana lectures on addiction prevention and gives workshops to teachers, mental health professionals, and parents. She's an EFT advanced practitioner and a therapeutic horseback riding instructor. She's the author of five books. That's very impressive. Four of them are novels. The fifth and most recent book, Grab the Reins, recounts Shoshana's work both in Returno, where she trained and worked and her private practice. The book, the book also tells the story of six of the women who, who, with whom she worked as they relate their own journeys. Shoshana trained and worked in maternal for eight years as an addictions counselor and as the intake coordinator for the English speakers seeking help. Shoshana has been married for over 30 years. She has eight children and four grandchildren. She originally, she's originally from Long Island, and she has been living in Israel and Beit Shemesh for over 20 years. I'm really excited to introduce you to Shoshana. Here she is. Hi, Shoshana. Hi, Menachem. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. This is uh, this is wonderful. Really excited. I'm excited too. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, the first time we met we, was at um, was at Returno, uh, actually. If you remember, we came with a group, and that was a that was a nice. Uh, uh, that uh, there was a little bit of a mess that first time that we met. <laughs> uh, we were we we were not expected at that moment, and then we just showed up. But uh, right. you guys adapted, and it was really it was it was really great. Okay, so let's just jump in right away. As the the listeners know, we bring on amazing guests that are accomplishing remarkable things. And we want to get to know them on a level of Pnimi, on a, an, interior, an interior level. So I have seven questions that we ask all of our guests, and I've provided them to Shoshana ahead of time if this is your first time listening. So these are not things she's answering off the cuff. She's had time to kind of think about it and really reflect and, you know, consider what she wants to pass on to you. Um, so, and I really appreciate that taking the time. So, but before that, if you could just give listeners, you know, they had a chance to hear about some of your accomplishments. If you want to just give listeners a sense of uh, who you are on a personal level. I started out with a degree in psychology and education, and I taught for several years and I was writing some of my books, some of my work in Mishpacha magazine. And 
I retired from teaching. Um, I actually liked the teaching part, but I didn't love discipline. I wanted to be like working with people who wanted what I had to offer. And, you know, elementary school is not really known for that. Um, so mm. I, I was spending more time writing and editing. And then I started teaching basketball in Retorno to women and girls in their inpatient program. And in exchange, I got a trail ride, a weekly trail ride up by horseback. And um, it was incredible for me to see, I taught basketball before, but here was like a new situation. And it, I was seeing that um, what was happening on the basketball court so perfectly mirrored what was going on in their treatment. And at the same time, I was learning to ride a horse. And I learned very early on that the horse totally mirrors everything about you. And it was like even way like more powerful than what I was seeing on the court. And it, like, I, I was just hooked. Like I was hooked on horses, hooked on Retorno, hooked on like the whole idea of being on a journey. It was like a, a, a specific focus journey. It wasn't just like, you know, moving forward in some random direction. It was like really focused. And um, since then, it's just been so clear to me that like, I'm just doing what I'm, I'm meant to do. I'm not actually in Retorno anymore. I'm doing work privately. I work with women who are struggling with codependency, addiction, and other other issues as well. The other issues come in also, I'm also an EFT practitioner. So mm. that enables me to do trauma work. And so it, it really means that I'll work with anybody who wants to grow and leave their stuff behind them. Mm. Um, I also, what I started doing in return also was lecturing and giving, you know, addiction prevention workshops. I'm still doing that. I'm also like, I'll give workshops or courses to non-addicts, which is interesting. That's an interesting experience. Um, in the summer, in fact, I'm giving a recovery treat for women who are dealing with addiction and codependence. And one thing I do just want to say about my like approach is what I learned through being an EFT practitioner is that, uh, I don't know if anybody needs like a little bit of an explanation about EFT. If, if you if you want, I can say a couple of words. Yeah, maybe that, if you basically... give somebody, if hey, somebody doesn't know. Okay, so it's um, using tapping on certain points of your body in order to release whatever's trapped there, uh, negative emotions or physical problems or trauma. And actually tapping on these physical points can release and can really undo, like really undo the damage caused by uh, previous experiences. Mm -hmm. So as an EFT practitioner, really my role is just a facilitator. Like I'm just a guide uh, to where the tapping should apply, but it's the tapping itself that does the work. And this is really how I see my, my role in my various modalities that I use. Like I'm just the facilitator. You guys, you know, mm. you do the work. I'm just here to guide you. Wow. That, that seems very parallel to uh, riding a horse, I guess. The horse is doing the riding. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. That's great. Are you still doing Equion kind of work? Yes, yeah, I am. Amazing. I'm there. I'm there once a week doing it privately. Um, okay, cool. Same the same stuff I was doing, but now I'm doing it just with a, a different, you know, population, not, not inpatient. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, great. That's awesome. Okay, thank you so much for sharing all that. So now we want to try to, you know, get to know you. And I think I might go back to some of those things later, but get to know you a little on uh, an interior level. So I asked you to think about, we we kind of follow a frame of Olam Shana Nefesh, which is a frame that's that's described in Chassidus and in, and in Pimis Torah, and just try to get to know you. So what we're going to do first is I asked you to think about, uh, you know, a place in the world. Uh, and I asked you to try to be as specific as possible. If we were talking about Jerusalem, you know, where in Jerusalem, if you're talking about the old city, where in the old city, if you're talking about the Kotel, I always just use as an example, because for so many of us, that is a very special place. Which stone, which spot do you love the most and why? What about that spot makes it your favorite? 
So I love this question. And I actually have to start with my second favorite spot. Okay. Okay. My second favorite spot is actually the spot where I am right now. Mm. It's the place where I'm going to put this word in quotes work. Now I don't like the word work because I don't think what I do is work. It's belittling somehow it's like a chore. You know, something I have to do. I don't like the word clients either for the same reason. Like it's just a little easier than, you know, the person with whom I'm speaking and hoping to navigate the like client just happens, you know? Um, but it's, it's this place where I, I do all my, I work mostly by zoom. So I do most of my sessions by zoom. Um, it's where I seek advice for myself. Um, it's where I do my own EFT work. It's where I meditate. It's where I play, pray, uh, where I plan, where I dream, where I think it's just like my place and it's just mine and nobody else gets to sit there. And yeah. it's just the place where I feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. Wow. That's only my second favorite place. Right. 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 That's amazing. That's so, you know, the thing you said there is that your work is not work. That's, that's very remarkable. I think all of us kind of um, want that, but that's a very special thing. I think, yeah, I would imagine that you would, I would guess that you would agree that part of why that's the case is because you found the thing that you think that you feel is what you're supposed to be doing. So then your work is not work. That's, that's really special. Okay. So what's your, what's your favorite place? So the reason I didn't start with my favorite place is because you wanted a specific place and that's hard, right? Okay. But really my favorite place is in the saddle Mm. and it's not, I can't, it's not a specific saddle and it's not a specific horse and it's not a specific mountain, Mm -hmm. but it's wherever I am at that moment. Um, it's, I don't mean to use to be irreverent and use this word, but it's really holy to me because it is the place where I experience the most spirituality. I'm alone with Hashem, no masks, no pretenses. It's just the ultimate connection for me. It's like no, no props, no fluff. It's just me. And um, like a horseback riding, like a horse exudes calm. That's its nature. And after I've been riding and I'm calm, my body's calm, my mind is quieted and and everything that interferes with the realness of Hashem is is just gone, and the static's gone, and it's just me and Him, and it, it just doesn't get any better than that, you know. So wherever I am at that moment, that's where I am the most alive and the most present. And some of my best moments have taken place there. It's it's also the place where like I think and I process, and I, I just allow myself to to listen to myself, and I and I it's a place where I've conquered many many of my fears. It's just. It's me being me and being okay with that. Is that, I mean, I would imagine that riding a horse, I mean, I've ridden a horse a couple of times and it's like incredibly stressful and overwhelming. Uh, was that something that over time, you know, became so, rela- I mean, you're almost like describing that it has become the opposite of that. You know, you're kind of like, uh, it's, that's remarkable. How does that happen? That happens with a lot of uh, inner work a tremendous and, and outer work. It's physical work. Also it's, it's strenuous. It's frustrating. Um, but it comes with a lot of inner work, which I, it's funny. I mean, this actually leads into your next question. So if you don't mind, I'll just, you know, go right into that Sure. because you, you know, um, you asked, you want to ask the question or I can. Sure. The next question is what episode in your life gave you a sense of permission to have hope or optimism? That's the next question, but I'm happy to jump into that. It's great. Okay, because that's really that's really what happened is that um, you know I started as I said riding in Returno, and like I'm I'm very athletic, but I'm also how should we say this a chicken, mm-hmm. and I'm like really I have a lot of fears and like I'm afraid of heights, I'm afraid of animals, I'm afraid of things that go fast. So you would not think that horseback riding would be like you know the most intuitive thing for me, right? Um, but I got on it and I just I loved it. Um, 
the thing is though that when you're writing like it's it is it's like scary and it's frustrating and you're bouncing all over the place and like you know a trotting horse if you've been riding you know boom 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 you're right. you're you're bouncing um and there are stages in learning how to ride and that bouncy like that trot is something that you're going to learn before you learn cantering which is like a real run so here's the difference when you're trotting you're basically like you find a step that you like rise and fall with the motion of the horse and you learn how to stay balanced and you learn how to stay on. And I would do that mostly by holding on for dear life to the saddle horn. Mm -hmm. That was, that was my thing. So that worked for trotting, but all when we were cantering and we'd be out in the mountains cantering, because I wasn't getting lessons. I was getting a trail ride every week. Right. And we'd be running. And when you're cantering, you, you can't really be holding on and enjoying yourself. It's, it's just, it doesn't work together. So in order to canter and really enjoy the ride, you have to relax. You have to let go. You have to do the opposite of what your body is telling you to do, right? Um, your natural instinct when you're under pressure is to like pull in and squeeze all your muscles tight and you're on a horse and you're doing that with your whole body and your legs, like everything's squeezing and you can't canter that way. You have to learn to let go. And I was terrified. I could not make that transition from trotting to cantering. And I wanted to be really enjoying myself more and I couldn't do it. So I went on this one trail ride with somebody that I really respect, and she's not particularly a good rider, and she's not particularly athletic, but she's telling me, Shoshana, let go, just let go. And I, this is somebody that I really trusted, and I just said, all right, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to let go, and I let go of the horn, and I let go of my muscles, and I just relaxed, and it was unbelievable. It was just, it was terrifying and thrilling, and I just learned at the, it was like it was a really transformational moment for me because this is when I was started to be able to look my fears in the eye and say okay I'm scared and I'm okay anyway you know it makes like in in um recovery this you know the saying let go and let god so like that was it it's like let go <laughs> and just let god like you're you're going to be safe trust god to take care of you and I, I just had to trust him to take me in the direction and I mean metaphorically and actually take me in the direction that I need to go I learned it's it's okay to be afraid and it's okay, it's possible even to not act on your fears. And this opens up like this whole world of possibilities to me. Cause as I said, I'm a big chicken. Like, I'm, you know, I have all these fears or whatever. And, and all of a sudden I didn't have to act on my fears anymore. I was able to face my fears. I was able to face my anxiety, face whatever other emotions were coming up. And this opened up tremendous worlds of new freedom to me. So it was very transformational. Wow. You describe the trotting as kind of being more engaged and kind of like managing. And then the, what was the, the second? Cantering. Cantering, sorry. And, and cantering kind of being more of a letting go. Is Does it stay that way? Meaning, is there a point at which trotting becomes more of like a let go kind of thing? Or is it, I'm just curious. Well, trotting is harder work because you have to be, uh, you're basically standing and sitting in the saddle. I learned writing in Hebrew, so I can't give you all the proper terms in English. It's okay. embarrassing because yeah, <laughs> no. I'm supposed to be this big, you know, but, um, but essentially the motion is that you're standing and sitting. I believe it's called a rising trot and it's hard work. Your muscles, you have to be in good shape. You have to like, after I'm, you know, I still take lessons today. And, and as I'm riding, like if I haven't ridden in a few weeks, I can really feel a difference. It's, it's, it's a good workout. Right. Whereas cantering, you have to sit properly, but you're, you're sitting deep and you're relaxing your body. It's very, very different. Because it's, a, it's a different discipline. It's different. It's a different feeling, and it's a different exertion. Mm. And and are you surrendering? You talked about like surrendering to God in that moment, and it's a beautiful metaphor for you know the let go and let God principle of recovery. 
is there a in that in that regard do you mean like surrendering to the horse or is there something else kind of beyond that it's both it's surrendering i have to have a certain level of trust in my horse i'm not going to take a horse that i don't know running i'm going to get to know him first i'm going to learn a little bit about him i'm going to make sure he listens to me that we're in touch with in tune with each other right um but bigger than that it's it's about trusting that hashem's got my back and the horse is unpredictable he's fast he's scary he's way bigger than me and i am trusting that hashem is going to keep me safe and whatever's going to happen is what needs to happen hmm. I, I mean it's it's an interesting kind of posture because on the one hand you're directing the horse and i don't think i ever thought about it this way but on the one hand you're kind of directing the horse and on the other hand you're kind of like letting the horse go and do its thing Right. So horseback riding is a partnership. Horsemanship is what they call it, really. Right. It's, it's it's a partnership between me and the horse, and but it's not an equal partnership. Um, I am the leader, and he is the follower. Right. Because if I let him lead, then it will not have a happy ending necessarily, right? Right, right, right. But, uh, it's, but it is a partnership, and we have to respect each other in order for it to work. Wow. I, I feel like that's such a powerful metaphor for like talking about it in a Jewish context for our interrelationship with our bodies, our interrelationship with our material selves. I, I, it would seem like that would be a very, very kind of, um, I mean, I wonder what you think about, um, you know, what, is, that a, is that a kind of an interesting parallel where on the one hand, you know, we want to, you know, generate passion for accomplishment and, you know, succeeding in the world. And on the other hand, we always want our more spiritual self to be running the show, you know, entirely, but there's a certain surrender from our spiritual selves to the body to kind of not the body physically, but our material selves to kind of like, let it go and do its thing or else we're kind of inhibited. Right. We have to, each side has to respect the other. Right. right. Wow. To, there's mutual gate. There's mutual gain. Right. So that's it, horsemanship is like the partnership between the rider and the horse. That's a very powerful, exactly. I did a, I did a number of episodes on the podcast about, I, I have a, here, I'll show you. Uh, if you could see her, she's like up over there in the corner. Oh, she's sleeping. I have a French bulldog, so I've been trying to train her as like a, a uh, like a therapy dog, just to use like in my practice. Um, very different, obviously, than riding a horse. Totally different. I'm not comparing them, but I've kind of like been thinking a lot about this interrelationship between an animal and a human, and kind of like who's in charge and who's not in charge and responding to needs. But this is like at a totally different level. Because you're literally riding the horse. The horse is much bigger than you. You're so vulnerable to the horse, you know, and yet you're supposed to be the leader. And then, okay, so trotting, I get, okay, but you're kind of like maintaining a lot of control, but now you're talking about like a letting go, but maintaining ownership. It just seems like you're doing two opposite things at the same time, which is remarkable to me. It is remarkable. And I'll take it even one step further because in the, in the recovery world, so this is the perfect metaphor for me and a feeling that is uncomfortable or, or difficult or my addiction or my core belief or any of these things, right? And I use this with clients all the time. It's, it's this is my fear. The horse is my fear. The horse is my addiction. If I'm an alcoholic, the horse is my alcohol. The horse is, it's bigger than me. It's stronger than me. It's more insidious than me. I cannot make, you know, go try to move a horse by force. Right. I cannot, it's not possible. I have to know the horse. I have to understand the horse. I have to understand and learn what he's all about. Right. And then I have to convince him that what he wants is what I want mm. and put myself in charge. And it's a process to learn how to do that. I can't just bully the horse around. Right. But the process is very, very powerful. 
Yeah, wow, I can imagine. I mean, I, it sounds to me like from a re recovery context, kind of like that balance, um, if we were talking about like 12-step recovery, like six and seven, where you're kind of like leveraging, starting to recognize, you know, defects of character in the context of like, no, these are your character traits. These are your feelings. These are your emotions. These are your passions. We don't want to quash that and make you into an, an, a robot, right? We want to invest in, we want to leverage those things. We want to create mastery over our challenges and then leverage those things for good. We want to get rid of the negative manifestations. We want to get rid of the um, negative applications of those things, but we want to find the proper applications of the good, which is a very, I mean, that's obviously a very Jewish idea as well, but definitely comes through in the recovery process. Very powerful. Wow. Okay. So the third question, moving on, I think we could probably spend a lot of time yes. just talking about this piece, <laughs> but uh, maybe we'll come back to it. So the third question, so we did, we did Olam, we did space. Um, you talked about your office and, um, and that was, you know, very real. And then you talked about the saddle and then, you know, the episode you talked about that moment where you kind of gave in and you found that balance or started to find that balance and how that was a pivotal moment for you to start to engage your fears. And it sounded to me like what you were saying was to some degree started to harness those fears in a, in a positive way, meaning to ride them, so to speak, but to take control, um, which is very powerful. So the third piece is I asked you to think about a specific folk story or maybe a proverb, a spiritual idea um, that best reflects you, something like that you've drawn a guiding principle from, uh, and you know what what is the principle that you take from that, and how do you apply that in your life? So the it's not a proverb; it's a story, and the story is a book that I read as a child a lot, and I'm guessing that a lot of people have read this book. And it's called "The Monster at the End of This Book," hmm. and this is a book. It's a Sesame Street book, and in this book, Grover hears the title of the book, and he says no, there's a monster at the end of this book. And, and he decides that in order to stay safe from this scary, scary monster, he has to prevent the reader from turning any pages. So obviously it's a book. So the reader turns the pages and it brings him closer and closer to the end of the book. And Grover tries all these different ways to prevent you from turning the pages. He ties it with knots. He, he like nails the pages together. He builds a brick wall. But beyond his control, the pages keep getting turned because the reader keeps turning them. And he's begging, no, please, please don't turn the page. You're almost at the monster. And then, okay, this is a spoiler alert if you hadn't read the book, but... He says, you get, you get to the end of the book, and, and it says, the end. And Grover says, look at that. This is the end of the book. And the only one here is me. He realizes I am the monster at the end of this book. Mm. And I take two very important things from here. One is fear keeps us paralyzed. It keeps us stuck. And yet, it is only ourselves or a part of ourselves that we're actually afraid of. And the other thing that I take from this book is that you can't keep the pages from turning. The pages are gonna turn, no matter what it means, no matter what means we use to try to get somebody, something, somehow the pages should stop turning. It's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. You know, we can try to use escape and denial. We can scream and tantrum and, and try to bully it and control it. Whether our means are logical or sane or, or relational, the pages are going to turn. And then it's just up to us to decide what we're going to do about it. You know, do we panic and, and, and deny it? Do we try to escape it? Or do we, do we embrace that reality and do we accept it? And then do we, do we prepare for it? Uh, it's a great book, by the way. I, 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 I <laughs> would not have remembered that book. I, I, mean, I, can't, I don't know. I can't even remember when I read that book. Such a great idea. So powerful. 
Um, one of the remarkable things is that it, it, it really challenges you to reframe how you see the word monster because all the Sesame Street characters are monsters, right? So like it, it, we associate things sometimes as so scary, but we have to kind of shift the perspective. But but what you pulled out is is unbelievable. What's really powerful is that it really touches on a general theme that you've touched on all the way through. I mean, you talked about early on about looking for a new a new life, a new you know way to apply yourself, and how your journey as a clinician and as a helper has been kind of this journey that you've kind of been on. It's kind of like guided you. Um, along the way, I don't remember the exact word that you used, but you kind of had described, I remember in the beginning, you were describing kind of like your journey through, you started by coaching basketball and then in a treatment center and then the riding of the horses. And then it became what I heard you say, you'll correct me if I, I misunderstood the way in which you identified the therapeutic value and the clinical, the inherent clinical process that was going on between the rider and the horse and between the players on the basketball court and the inherent human growth that emerged out of all those things kind of played out into your life, into this narrative, this story, this book um, that has kind of led you to the place that you're in today and where something that you've described does not work, something where you described as I'm doing what I meant to do, you know, and that's a beautiful story because it's kind of like it's, it's not even like the story of the people that you're helping. It's your story. Right. That's kind of gone along the way. And what you described is like that surrendering to the process. It's really touched on the cantering piece. Right. Which is kind of like surrendering and letting go and leaning in to the process of your life in spite of the fact that it's terrifying and worrisome and scary. Right. And and then the fact that you're really ultimately facing yourself in that process and how our resistance points are really about us facing ourselves. Um, the other thing that I touched on that really that really kind of grabbed me is you described the EFT technique, right, which is utilizing tapping. That does relate to the idea that we kind of hold things within our bodies, right, trauma, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of utilizing different techniques, which is kind of a totally new thing in the last, you know, really has become more popular in the last five, 10 years, right? It's now become normal. 15 years ago, that was seen as like some pseudoscience weird thing that people did. Right now, it's like it's become a, a completely recognized thing to do because we're starting to understand the way that our bodies interrelate with our minds and with our souls and our spirits and how we hold trauma. But what you described is I don't, I'm not I'm really the guide. I'm not actually doing the work. The tapping is doing the work. Right. And in a certain way, it's the person themselves doing the work. Right. I often tell clients that like uh, therapy is like a is a is like a nature walk, right? And I've never been on your walk. I've just been on a lot of walks. That's what I'm doing here. I've been on a lot of walks and this, but this is your walk. I mean, this yeah. is a totally new journey. And that's like a very, very different thing. It's a very affirming idea and it's nice, but, but I, but I believe that it's true. It kind of struck me that that was kind of an idea that you were putting across as well. And that seems to be a lot of what the Grover book seems to be saying for you because Grover's running from himself. He's running from himself, right? And he's, and he's the one who is the last to recognize that as well. When you read that book and then you get to the end and like you hop it, I remember as like a kid, just like, I don't know if I read it as a kid or like with my kids, it's just like, whoa, whoa, wow, you know? And then, and then, and then you read what Grover says. Grover's the last one to get it. That's unbelievable. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's great stuff. I want to move on to the kind of second part of the interview, timing-wise, where in good space. So the second part of the interview is, you know, thank God, thank you, 
Shoshana, we've gotten to know you a little bit, uh, kind of get to know this whole part of you related to, to horseback riding and also that uh, you find spiritual messages in Sesame Street books, which is inherently a really, <laughs> a really special thing that I like. But uh, to really kind of take the time to pull out some practical wisdom that you can share with the listeners. So the first thing I asked you to think about is, is there a daily practice or a habit that you have that you can kind of look back at and feel like, and, and say, you know, that's really contributed to my personal success. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be secret, but particularly something that may, we might take for granted. You know, one of the things I found in life is that sometimes th the things that I thought were so meaningless in retrospect turned out to be the things that were important. And those things tended to be not so complicated. And the things that I thought were the biggest deals didn't really matter that, that much at all. So it doesn't have to be one of those things, but what, well, you know, if you could share with us something that really, uh, something practical that people can really draw that really has helped you have the success that you have. I actually have a few practices that I do on a daily basis and some I do on a weekly basis. Um, I'm a big, big believer in preventive maintenance. So um, I exercise every single day. I run, I swim, uh, I play basketball twice a week, and um, I go to sleep early, I wake up early, and I start my day, about a year ago, I started meditating in the morning. And I, I happen to like the heart-brain coherence meditations. I think that, you know, it's like, uh, if, you know, if you, anybody knows about that heart math, it's like, I look at it as like the calm that keeps on calming all day long. So I like to start my day with, uh, I, you know, I do this before, before I turn on any, I open my WhatsApps or my emails, like the meditation comes first, because otherwise the, all the thoughts of the next day come crowding and I want to be where I'm at. Right. And I, I start my day with meditation and then exercise, and then my day can start after that. And this is my physical and spiritual prevention and maintenance, both. Hmm. How do you make the time for it? <laughs> uh, it's you, you put in first into your day, the things that you need to put in and then see what's left for at least see what time is left for everything else. Because if you leave exercise to last or meditation to last, it's not going to happen. Right. People, women ask me this all the time and I've been exercising. I'm very athletic, as I said. So like, you know, it's something people have always asked me, Oh, how do you make time? And they ask me also like, how do you keep up with it? Oh, I gave up. You know, I tried aerobics. I tried this. I, I so the answer to that is, so pick something you like, not something you should do. Hmm. And how do you make time for it? Is you do it in the place that works for you best, that you're most likely to keep it up. It just it's it's not meant to be not meant to be a drain on your energy. It's supposed to be an energy giver. Even if the exercise itself is draining, that's okay. Like I don't love running. I have news for you. I don't. I just do it because I a day that I run and a day that I don't run look very different. So is that is it that you put it first or that you kind of schedule it in in a way that it's convenient? It's well for me. It happens to work to do it first thing in the morning. But um, you know, first meaning uh, it happens. It happens to be first in my day. But it's it, it's scheduled first. It doesn't matter for somebody. Like if anybody, you know, my my kids go running at night, for example. You know, that works for them. Everybody's going to do what works for them. But I mean, it to do the things in my day that give me energy to do everything else in my day, even though they're less important on the in the grand scheme of things. Mm. They are the things that recharge my batteries. Wow. I just said something very powerful to me, you know, the way that you framed it, I think is very, very important. What you're saying is, you know, sometimes the things that are important, like exercise, let's say, it seems like it's kind of less important than maybe some of the, the more meaningful things we have to do, whether it's our jobs or our families, our religious activity. Um, those things seem much more, you know, exercise seems more superficial. 
but what you're pointing out is that there are ways, there are facets of self-care, right? And you didn't just talk about physical exercise. You were talking about meditation, I think, uh, which is also something I've observed people struggle to make time for. Um, those are energy givers. They're not energy drainers. And that's a very, that's a, a very powerful principle. And that I think probably relates back to what you were saying before in terms of picking something that you enjoy doing. Because if you're picking something that you don't like doing or that you don't love or that doesn't feel great at the end, then it ends up being an energy drainer. And then you're kind of applying energy to something that's going to make you feel less energized. So, exactly. but, but by giving priority to something that's seemingly on the outside more superficial, by giving a priority, you're really giving priority to the things that are more meaningful because you're allowing yourself to have the energy to be able to do the things that on the outside are maybe more important. I like the way you put that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very powerful. I, it's very personal. Cause I, 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 I struggle. I, I get it. I'm, I'm like classically one of those people that gets like, I get into a good rhythm and I'm exercising every day, you know, and I love basketball. It's funny you talk about basketball. I love playing basketball, but I haven't, I, I don't really have the time and energy to do it. I haven't made the time and energy to do it. So finding other exercise that I enjoy has been a struggle for 10 years, right? So I'm constantly going back and forth between, you know, a few months where I'm like good in a good rhythm. And I was even in a good rhythm this winter. I was running every day and I felt amazing, but then, you know, a couple snow days and a couple days not feeling so good. And then I'm out of rhythm and now, you know, it's terrible. And that battle, and that's probably why I processed it that way. Cause it was, you know, cause we look at everything through our own lens, but, um, part of the battle is, well, how important is this? You know, I got to get to shul. I got to get to work. I got to be present for my family. But on the other hand, I got to take care of my body and, and that kind of battle. And, and what you said that I think was really, really meaningful is, you know, if it's positioned as an energy giver, then it's not about giving that priority over those other things, but really it's prioritizing the important things, making sure that you have the energy to do it. And you also talked about going to sleep early and getting up early. Um, those are, you know, incredibly powerful things or proper sleep, I think is a, is probably a frame because some people like need you know they do better in the evenings but really like kind of taking care of our bodies in a meaningful way super powerful okay so th the next thing i asked you to think about was um to think about one part or one component or one aspect of one relationship uh that makes that relationship awesome and work and what are the steps you do to foster that so you don't even have to talk about the really but just one facet of a relationship and what you do to foster that facet so that would have to be honesty and openness. Mm. And there are a few people with whom I can be completely, completely honest and open. No need to prevaricate. I mean, I'm specifically thinking of my husband and maybe one or two other people. Um, I, I'm a, actually a pretty private person in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm not like a big social, um, you know, I don't have a big social circle. Um, but on it, to me, honesty is the most important thing in a relationship because in order to be close with somebody, to have any form of intimacy with them, you, you need to be honest. Otherwise, you're not having a close relationship with the person. You're having a close relationship with some sort of mask or some sort of image that you're projecting or they're projecting. And that, to me, is not real. So if I'm going to be close with somebody have an emotional closeness, it's got to be open and, and honest. And I work on that by being honest with myself. Because if I'm not honest with myself, I can't be honest with somebody else. So right. I, there's a lot of inner dialogue 
a lot of self-checking, a lot of, you know, just making sure I'm clear with who I am and am I, am I where I want to be and practicing being okay, making mistakes and being genuine with other people. And that sometimes is uncomfortable because nobody likes to admit they made a mistake. And I practice that all the time. And then on the flip side, I practice, I very much practice making it okay for the other person to make a mistake. I used to be super critical of myself and other people. And that's something I've really, really worked on over the years. I'm still working on it. It's, you know, it's always a work in progress, just making it safe for the person to be who they are without judgment or criticism. You answered the whole question. That was amazing. <laughs> I don't have any follow-ups because you really, you really answered the whole question. That's amazing. Okay. So, so honesty, I, something that struck me that you said was, first of all, that you have to be honest with yourself in order to be honest with others. Um, and the other really powerful thing, and I'm wondering how much of that, it's a very spiritual way of looking at it, is if I'm in a relationship and I'm not being honest in the relationship, then I'm not actually in the relationship. That person is in a relationship with somebody else that I'm pretending to be. And that is that would seem to be a very big motivator for someone to kind of further develop honesty, aside from the negative consequences of dishonesty, right? Which is like, if I love somebody, I really want to be in relationship with them, not posturing to for them to be in a relationship with somebody that they want me to be. I guess that also relates to kind of codependency and a lot of the, does that relate to the work that you do in that, in that sphere? Very much. Very much. Very much. Like being, letting go of the fear of what will people think of me right. if I do this and that. It also relates to my relationship with Hashem because I can pretend to do this and pretend to be that. And the truth is I want to be genuine with him because I want to be real with him. And I don't want to pretend to be what I'm not. So I want to be growing. I want to be growing closer to him. In order to do that, I have to be more and more honest with him and more and more, honest, again, more and more honest with myself. Mm. I forgot I was going to ask you, but that's okay. Um, okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you something else, but uh, what you said uh, probably was much better than anything I was going to ask. Okay, so what practice, I asked you to think about a practice or a mantra uh, do you have to help you stay grounded? I mean, on the one hand, you're working with people. Uh, you made a very grounding statement about, you know, them doing the work and you being a guide. Um, that's a very humble statement. Um, but also you're accomplished, you published, you, you know, you, you've done a lot of things. So how do you, how do you kind of stay grounded? And then, you know, with your family, with your, with yourself, within yourself, um, what, what are the things you do to stay kind of on the ground? Well, like I said before, you know, I, I do, um, I see myself as a facilitator but there's, you know, in terms of a mantra, there's one statement that does come to me all the time and I repeat it all the time and it helps me navigate all these challenges and my own challenges and other people's challenges, which is there are two categories in life. There are things that I can change and things that I have to accept. And most of life's frustration and, and annoyances and difficulties when I try to put things into the wrong category. So whenever I'm feeling ungrounded or unsafe or uncomfortable, I ask myself, well, am I trying to put something to the wrong category? Is this something I can change or is this something I need to accept? And I figure it out from there. And I keep going back to that question. Hmm. So it's like that frame that kind of keeps you grounded in where you are. Right? Is, this, is yeah. this an acceptance? I mean, it's obviously reflective of the, the serenity prayer. Uh, that's kind of common. Well, that's recovery. where it, that's that's definitely you know the parallel. That's where it came. That's I believe where the whole thought process came from. Right. But it's just something that I come back to all the time because you know something happens. I'm stuck in traffic, 
and you know you start to get all worked up, you start to get all angry, and you think of all the consequences and the end of what's going to happen, the ramifications, and you're like, well, one second, what's going on for me? You know, take stock, but think think about it. Where I'm, oh right, I forgot, I'm trying to play God here because I think that I need to be on time for that appointment. Mm. Who said I need to be on time for that appointment? So instead of me thinking that I'm the boss, you know, master of the universe, I would try to remember who is and step back and find my, my place again in life. Wow. Okay. So the last question that I wanted to review is, um, you know, burnout, you know, the need to recharge handling emotional downs is just part of human experience. Uh, it's particularly kind of present for, you know, people that are involved in mental health. Um, but anybody working with anybody, teachers. So what are some specific t- steps that you take to recharge, to handle burnout or the emotional downs that come along with uh, being a human? First and foremost, horseback riding. I, like I said before, I'm a very big believer in, you know, preventive maintenance. So I, I try to make sure I'm on a horse uh, at least once a week, but whenever there are just, sometimes it's just like, you know, life gets to you and tension. Um, and I think, okay, where can I go riding? How can I go riding? Cause I don't own a horse. So I have to come up with some other options. How to do, I have several options for Hashem of how I can get on a horse, but that's my go-to. Um, and if that's not an option, cause that's not always an option. So I, like I said, I have tapping, you know, and that's really grounding. It's really calming, it's recharging. It's it's not just, you know, it's, it's a great trauma tool but it's not only a trauma tool. It's like really good for here and now I'm uptight, I'm tense, I'm feeling insane. Hmm. And I tap and it really, really takes the edge off whatever it is I'm feeling. Um, and I will do that fairly often. And I will also just sometimes, you know, if I feel like, okay, I, I need to get I have too much responsibility, too much, whatever, too much. And I just, um, I will just shut down. Like, I'll just tell my kids, you know, I'm going to sleep early tonight, seven o'clock. There's a sign on my door that says, do not disturb. I turn my phone off or shut my computer down and I'll sit in, sit in bed with a book and um, I just, nobody, you know, like a, I have like a, a no, it's not even, it's not just a no tech zone. It's a no anything zone. And I just uh, re, recoup some space and time for myself. Oh, wow. So giving yourself the space to recharge. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm happy you said that about tapping. I, I didn't mean to like, um, it's great. I'm happy you said that because even like the the grounding nature of that discipline is, is amazing. Um, and the way in which you kind of like come back to our bodies and kind of ground ourselves um, in reality and all those things. It's, it's amazing. Okay. So just before we close, you mentioned a retreat that you're doing. Um, is, is that in Israel? Is that in the United States? What's the... It's, it's in the U.S. It's on the East Coast, mm-hmm. New York area. Uh, it'll be in the summer. And it's for women um, who are looking to enhance or explore uh, recovery, what, what recovery is all about. It's, it's 12 steps and it's uh, EFT and it's like my diff, just different pieces of things that I've collected along the way that I found to be uh, connecting, very connecting. And is it for individuals in recovery? Is it for family members of individuals in recovery? Is it? It's for anybody, any, anybody who's dealing with codependence or any kind of addiction or, is considering a 12-step program and doesn't know what it's about. It just wants to see like what some of the tools are mm-hmm. in, in the program. And it's very small. I'm keeping it very, very small. Okay. That's great. That's awesome. Um, so how would people find out more information? So they could email me. I'm happy to email you. Okay. So you'll, you'll give me the email address and I'll post it in the episode sure. details if anybody mm-hmm. wants 
information. Um, Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing us with us. Um, it was great. It was really, really remarkable. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was really, it was really a pleasure, and it was great to see you again. Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place New York, made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, in memory of Tsipora Basravaron. Host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback, so please feel free to email us or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.